So again, let yourself sit comfortably to listen. And, and as you listen tonight, uh, remember that whatever you hear or whatever is said is primarily a reminder to what you already know. And if it doesn't seem right, discard it, let it go. But if it does seem right, know that it's something that you already understand. And what I'd like to talk about tonight is forgiveness. Um, I did a bit of a workshop on forgiveness in Berkeley over the weekend for the Greater Good Center. Was anybody at that? One person? Okay. You'll hear some of, this, some of the same stories, but you'll survive. Forgive me for that, please. Um, and I want to tie it into the meditation practice that we started with this evening and that we're undertaking of mindfulness and compassion. Because without the spirit of forgiveness or kindliness toward ourselves as much as anything, it becomes almost impossible to undertake an inner journey. Otherwise, you're just sitting there judging, this is no good and I hate this and that's bad and that's right. And, you know, um, you won't even really see clearly until you can stop and say, let me allow things to be met with an open heart rather than the judgmental mind. You know the difference, right? (laughs) So the question is this. um, What is this mysterious human capacity for forgiveness and the dignity that it can bring to us? And you think about, or I think about, the kind of global exemplars of forgiveness of Nelson Mandela walking out of Robben Island Prison after 27 years, which was imprisonment and torture and all kinds of things, with such graciousness and such forgiveness and such magnanimity and, and uh, dignity that he changed the imagination of the whole country of South Africa and in many ways of the world. Or Aung San Suu Kyi, who's been under house arrest for all these years in Burma, um, could leave at any time but never allowed back to Burma if she leaves. And she says, I will not go, and I will not hate you, and I will not go. I will be here, and I will not hate you. Or this picture that I carry when I teach of Vedran Smolovich, who was the cellist in Sarajevo. He was part of the Sarajevo National Symphony and during the three years that Sarajevo was under siege in the 1990s during the, during the war between the Bosnian Serbs and Croats um, sniper fire, mortars, really quite dangerous he would go out almost every day put on his tux and put, his, put a little folding chair and, and, and play music so that the people of the city wouldn't give up hope in spite of the fact that there was sniper fire. So what is it that allows us to take difficult circumstances and transform them? And I think about it in my own life, the, the pain of my own upbringing and family, childhood, because my father was... Um, it was an inter- interesting combination of things. He was a scientist, quite brilliant in many ways, and creative person, and he was also paranoid and abusive and violent, you know, and he didn't abuse us as children as much as he abused his wife, my mother, Um, but really pretty terrible. Um, And I don't know, it's hard to know whether it's worse to be beaten yourself often or to watch somebody that you love get beaten, kind of, both are pretty terrible. So how, you know, I had to look in myself, how do you, how did I deal with the kind of sufferings. Um, And what is this that is um, this mysterious capacity to move on and not be completely caught by the past? In the Buddhist teachings, uh, the first central truth that the Buddha articulated was called the Four Noble Truths. And the first of them is the truth uh, that life entails some measure of suffering. 
that life includes suffering. Anybody not have that? <laughs> Look around, make sure you can have your $8 back, right? <laughs> Fortunately, that's not the end of the story. There are causes for the suffering. Grasping, greed, hatred, ignorance, fear, all those things that we know that create suffering. And then there's the end of suffering. There's a, there's a release from suffering. And the point isn't to suffer, but actually to be happy. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, put it this way. He said, if you let go a little, you'll be happy a little. If you let go a lot, you'll be happy a lot. If you let go completely, you'll be completely free and happy. It's your choice. Go ahead. You know. Because things are always changing, even the trauma and tragedy we have is not always here anymore. And if we cling to it, we get what's called rope burn. Basically, things have changed and we're still trying to hold on to it. And it doesn't work. So questions for you. How many of you sitting here, coming this evening to meditate, as we do in our lives, feel like there would be some useful forgiveness you could do of yourself? Most hands go up. How about forgiveness of others? Almost as many hands. Um, how about forgiveness in, re- in terms of relationship, love, divorce, you know, all that stuff? How many have forgiveness in that area? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, politics, don't bother. Right? <laughs> I've been betrayed. Oh, yeah. Family, I could ask. A lot of hands would go up about family. Money, how many people have, you know, betrayals and... Um, How about your own body? Think about that. So forgiveness, when we look at it, is part of the mystery of human consciousness and incarnation. Um, Here we are in these human bodies that we somehow find ourselves in with the sense experiences and pleasures and pains of growing in contact with the world and all these experiences we have, and where do we center ourselves? Do we center ourselves in fears, in grasping, in resisting, in reaction, in conditioning? Because the culture is a, you know, a great form of conditioning. It wants to condition you to be materialistic, for example, and that's where you'll be happy or satisfied. Or It wants to condition you at times to be frightened of the other, you know, whoever is the enemy du jour, it was the communists, no, it's the Muslims, no, it's the, you know, whatever it is, it's, you know, whoever it happens to be. Um, But we have as well a capacity not to be lost in the conditioning, but for the heart to be free. As someone said, the, the future, the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And what it means is that there is some connection that we have to timeless truths that are bigger than the changing circumstances of our lives. And part of this mystery is that consciousness, which is like a stream or a river, it receives experiences, but it's not bound by them, that consciousness itself has the capacity to let go and move on. And this is what forgiveness is. It's the capacity to release the past, let go of burdens that we carry, of the sorrows and pains, of the betrayal. It's a shift from who we thought we were to the ground of release, of love, of compassion. And it is mysterious. Love itself is mysterious. Can anybody explain love? It's like gravity. It's this force that um, Brian Swim calls it allurement. It's that connection, like gravity at a distance, things want to pull together. The planets and the galaxies are all. And love in some way, it's, it's the conscious force of connection from the big flash, which is what I'd rather call the big bang since there wasn't any atmosphere at the time. But we were actually were all together in the singularity, remember? And then we've differentiated. And love is just kind of connecting back to where you were. The capacity to let go or to forgive. And in this seminar I did the other day, this woman raised her hand. She said, I was in New York on 9-11. 
downtown. My husband, I thought, was in one of those buildings. I was completely frightened. I inhaled all this stuff. It was bad for my body. I got traumatized. And, you know, how can I forgive those people? 3,000 people died. And I said, I don't know how you can forgive those people. But I know this, that um, first there's the trauma you have to heal in yourself. Because when we have trauma, we have to attend to it. But if you, if you carry the anger and hatred, um, who's suffering? When I think of Aung San Suu Kyi or Nelson Mandela or Booker T. Washington who says, don't ever, ever let them pull you down so low as to hate them. I think what really matters in our lives, in our hearts? Sometimes really terrible things happen. That kind or, you know, the death of a child or something that's um, an overwhelming kind of tragedy. And it doesn't go away. You can't fix it and kind of paper it over and make it better. Um, But you can take it as as a fire, as a flame that's been planted in your heart that you have to carry for this life but you can carry it with some dignity and beauty rather than just with a sense of uh, anger and hatred. Does that make sense to you? It's not that it goes away, but you use it to illuminate life. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate, put it this way. He said, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can also elevate human beings. God, help us to bear our suffering well. So you come to meditate, as we did tonight, and you get the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. You get your unfinished tears and the longings that you have and the betrayals and the, you know, the pains you carry in your body. But also you get the beauty of a deep breath and the sense of possibility and the creative thoughts and the love that you have that wants to express itself. You get all of your humanity and you take your seat with mindfulness as the Buddha under the tree of your own tree of enlightenment and first you let yourself become present for this life. It's the only life you have. What is Oscar Wilde said? Be yourself, everyone else is taken, something like that, you know? But what forgiveness does is it allows you to be, I won't even say the best of yourself, but a liberated self. Because with forgiveness, you're unwilling to attack or wish harm on another being no matter what they did. How's that? Without forgiveness, life would be unbearable. It's hard to imagine a world without forgiveness because we would all be chained to the past to just repeat the suffering over and over and over with no release. And that would be true in Northern Ireland between the Protestants and Catholics who did a good job of it for half a thousand years. Oh, yeah, those guys marched through the neighborhood wearing whatever they did in 1493 and I'm never going to let them do that again, you know and the Bosnian, the Serbs, and the Croats, and the Hutus, and the Tutsis, and the Palestinians, and the Israelis. We were here first. We were here 2,800 years ago. No, no, we were here 3,500. Come on, give me a break. You know, or the Cambodians, or the South Africans, or the Americans, if you really look at it, think about it. So we all on this earth need to find a path to reconciliation or we're doomed. But fortunately, there is a path, and we know this in ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean that it's easy. It's not for the faint-hearted, as Meher Baba says. We often prefer the pain that we know to the unknown of what if I let go. Don't we? But to forgive means certainly those outside of us, but also ourselves, as you'll see, means that you finally say, it stops with me on the outside. No matter what they did or what happened, I will not live in hate, and I will not pass it on to my children. 
uh, even if I have to bear more so it's I got more than they did. You know how that remember when you were a kid? Yeah, it's not I got you could which portion you got. You got what you got, and you may have gotten something terrible, but what will you do with that? So I write about in this book, The Wise Heart, about a woman who came that I worked with for a time who was in a really terrible divorce situation because her husband was a lawyer who was also he was a lot of money and a, a very skilled and aggressive lawyer, and so she lost all her money, uh, all their money, whatever, and also mostly custody of her kids, and it was terrible for her and agonizing. And she worked through a lot about the betrayal and the, you know, all that they had done to each other. And finally she came into me one day and she said, you know, I've been sitting with this and it's been so agonizing, the grief and the loss and how do I do with my children? And then I realized I simply am not going to hate anymore. I cannot do it. Not for me. I, I need a new life and not for my children. I will not do this to my children. You know, or the guy who came whose brother they hadn't talked for a dozen years and his brother somehow wangled most of the money of the estate from their father. Um, actually, I had somebody come up on that forgiveness day and talk to me and say, I want to forgive this person, but how do I make him accountable first? <laughs> See, you understand, don't you? I said, you know, justice is one thing. You can take that puppy to court if that's what you want to do and look for justice, and that's a fine thing, and sometimes it's necessary. But that's not forgiveness. It's a different game. It really is. So this is the architecture of forgiveness. It's not easy. James Baldwin, who I read very often here because it's got such a profound Dharma message where he says... I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and fear so stubbornly is that they realize that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And whether it's in forgiveness or in other ways, we project it on these other people, whoever they happen to be, because we can't really sit with our own insecurity and our own pain. So we make somebody else the enemy who looked different or acted the wrong way or whatever it is. Um, because we can't bear to feel our the fullness of both our pain and our humanity. And yet to do so has dignity, nobility, and freedom in it. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said there are two kinds of suffering. The kind you run from that follows you everywhere and the kind you turn around and face that will liberate you. So here's a little of the architecture of forgiveness. If you honorably face the loss, the betrayal, the measure of pain, and so forth. The first is, the the passage from the Buddha um, in the Dhammapada, he robbed me, he beat me, he threw me down. Perpetuate these thoughts and you will live in sorrow. He robbed me, he beat me, he threw me down. I'll leave it in the masculine. Usually I change gender, but... In this case, we'll leave it as it belongs. He robbed me, beat me, threw me down. Abandon these thoughts. Free your hearts. Live in love. Life is short, says the Buddha. You too will pass away. How long will you carry this pain? So the architecture of forgiveness. The first thing to understand is that it doesn't mean forgive and forget. It doesn't mean you condone something that happened. You may say, I will never let this happen again. I'll do everything in my power to stand up to make sure that I or someone else doesn't suffer in this way. And it also doesn't mean you have to speak or relate to somebody or some institution that harmed you if it it could happen again. You protect yourself. So it doesn't condone it. Secondly, it's not sentimental or quick. I forgive you, I forgive you, nice, nice little yellow smiley face or thing like that. It means that you have to honor your grief and your hurt and your anger, and it can take a long time, a year or two years, over and over again. Um, And it's not just that for other people, but it's also the forgiveness for ourselves of so many things that we don't hold ourselves with compassion about. Florida Scott Maxwell, the author who writes, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. Right? <laughs> and we've internalized that, and we're never good enough, right? And we're always going to, you know, 
it's not sentimental, uh, and it's not quick. It's a deep process that includes tears. The Lakota Sioux Indians called the tears the grief that we carry some of the holiest things that we carry within us to be honored. It's the work of the heart that gradually permits us to love in places that hurt the most and therefore to be free in places that hurt the most to start anew. And, it, you know, I mean, when I first learned forgiveness practice, the teacher said, do it, you know, a couple times a day, five, ten minutes for the next six months and let me know how it's going. So that meant, like, do it 300 times. And sometimes you do it and you say, I hate this person, I'll never forgive them son of a bitch, you know, whatever. And all that stuff is in there, right? You know, or I hate myself, I'll never get over this. And, and, and it just shows you the work of the heart. It says, okay, here's, here's where it's still caught. Here's where it still hurts so deeply. And that's the place. And maybe you just start by forgiving yourself that you can't forgive. That's a fine place to start. And you do it little by little, and then after, you know, 200 times, you go, ah. Uh, Okay, maybe I'll forgive a little bit. It's getting tiring. I guess it's time, you know. <clears throat> so it's not sentimental or quick. It's not condoning. And it's not for the other person. You know, I mean, there you are. Somebody betrayed you. You're really angry and, you know, so wrought up about it. And they are on vacation right now in Hawaii. <laughs> Who is suffering, Right. It's like the ex-prisoners of war, one who says to the other, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the second one says, no, never. And the first one says, they, then they still have you in prison, don't they? It's really for yourself. It's like the story, which I won't tell the whole story of, of this woman that I met. Um, tell about this woman in Washington, D.C., whose son was killed in gang violence, and he was just an innocent teenager walking by. And she ended up, in the court when the young man who shot her son was convicted saying, I'm going to kill you to this kid. And then she ended up visiting him after a while and making friends with him. And finally when he got out five, six years later, didn't know where to go and she helped him get a job and a place to stay, gave him her spare room actually. And after this whole long thing, she said, remember that day I said I was going to kill you? He said, yes, ma'am, I'll never forget that. She said, well, I have. You see, I didn't want somebody who could kill another another child in cold blood to still live on this earth. So I said about visiting you and changing you, and that's why I brought you things and got to know you and gave you a little money and got you a job and a place to live. But I don't have anybody. I only had my son, and he's gone. And you're not that person anymore. And you're living with me, and, you know, I need somebody too. Um, and she asked if she could adopt him as her son, and did. So it's not for the other person. Really, it is. There's something in it that we need to do so deeply for ourselves. Poem from Diane Ackerman. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon, and the night when it departs. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, an architect of peace. So we get to set the compass of our heart. We get to choose the direction of our life no matter what the circumstances are. And that's the extraordinary thing. Because you will suffer. And you will be betrayed. How many people have been betrayed? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> you will. But what dignity, what beauty, what compassion, what liberation can you, can you turn that into? It's not for the other, it's for yourself. And it also is a practice or a training. You know, modern neuroscience has all this stuff about neuroplasticity. Even if you're 90 years old, if you take up the violin and learn to practice it, they can measure in the fMRI the parts, place where all your fingers go on the little fretboard of the violin. Um, uh, after a while of practicing, all those cells grow more, and they, it's measurable. 
what you practice changes your, you're shaping your brain. Sorry to tell you, right? <laughs> so is the television you watch and the way you drive and so forth. But nevertheless, um, the thing about Buddhist teaching, because this is something universal. In the African traditions, there are these beautiful traditions of forgiveness. In the Babemba tribe, they take somebody who has betrayed the tribe and instead of punishing them, they put them in the middle of a circle and they tell that person every good thing that they can remember that that person has done in their whole life for days until that person remembers who they are. Now, I have this whole description of how the Babemba does it. And I met this guy, he was a a friend actually, who'd spent a lot of time with the Angangas in uh, Zimbabwe, who are the shamans and the kind of medicine people there, and who'd spend time with the Babembas. And he said, I don't remember, remember the Babembas having this ritual. You know, I was with them for quite a while. I have some friends in the Babembas, and this thing, it sounds really beautiful, but I don't know that they do it exactly that way. Do you think maybe somebody made it up in California, right? You know? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. And he said, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to email it to one of the chiefs of the Babembas, who's a friend of mine, and they'll try it, and they'll let you know. <laughs> How's that, huh? So now they do it, anyway. <laughs> but it's there in the Christian teachings. You know, Jesus has turned the other cheeks. It's there in Islamic teachings, the mercy of Allah. What's beautiful about the Buddhist teachings is not only that it's there, but that there are trainings and practices to do it. There's a training for compassion, a training for equanimity, a training for mindfulness of the body, a training for forgiveness that we'll do some of tonight so that there are ways to do it. And you start, of course, with this mindful presence that we began this evening to be present for an itch and a, and a bit of anxiety and the restlessness and all those worries that, that you come with and the longing and the love and the image of somebody that comes and the pain in your body. And you take your seat in the middle of it with some dignity to say, I can be present and aware without reacting to all this, without grasping this and without being frightened of that. And you start to allow your heart to center and calm and see clearly with both mindfulness and compassion. This is our human lot. And with this power of presence, then forgiveness begins to grow. Because you start to see, well, how is it not forgiving? What's that feel like? Mm. And then what is it like when you start to forgive? And you also begin to realize, you begin to trust as you sit and are present that things can change, that they do change, that they will change, and that there's a deep trust somehow if you attend, if you bring a loving heart to your own circumstance or those around, that healing can take place, that uh, the things that have been divided can be reconnected. Pablo Neruda, the poet, puts it in one line. He says, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And whatever things have happened to you that are difficult um, are not the end of the story. They're a chapter in the story, and sometimes, you know, you're reading Dickens' Bleak House or something. It's a tough story. It is. (laughs) But nevertheless, they're not the end of the story. The end of the story is not in time. The end of the story is that place where where your humanity touches that which is timeless, eternal that is in you. You remember that cartoon from the San Francisco Chronicle that shows the camels crossing the Sahara, the father on the first camel, this little group, family and the mother on the second camel with her carpets and bags and then the three children on the little camels and the father and the last little girl are talking and finally he says to her, stop asking if we're almost there yet, we're nomads for crying out loud, right? (laughs) You know. When you meditate and you practice for a while, you realize it's not about getting some state. Okay, now I got the meditation state. That's like holding your breath. Okay, I've had, I want it to stay. I'm not going to change. <laughs> ah, you'll die, right? 
What it is is to relax into the river of change of sensations and feelings and thoughts. The Buddha said we are a river and only when we allow this river to be met in this great space of mindfulness can the heart be free. So you begin to trust this. Now here are some other principles of forgiveness. I'll name a few and then we'll do our practice. It's a dozen principles. You know the Buddha was a list maker. He liked to make lists and things. First, important in Buddhist psychology is to know what forgiveness is, to understand what it is and what it isn't. It's not condoning. You know, you can stand up and say never again. It's not for the other person. They may never speak to you or they may forgive you, they may not, you may forgive them. It's not about that. It's really for for your own dignity and your own deep well-being. Also, the second step principle is to sense the sufferings of holding on. And it doesn't take very long when you sit quietly and really pay attention and see the thoughts of revenge. And revenge thoughts are amusing for a time. I mean, I've had people come to me, fellow teachers who were betrayed in love relationships, you know, and they're all trying to be Buddhist about it. And I say, okay, you know, come on, tell me, if you were to take revenge, what would it look like? And they just laugh out loud because you know it's in there, right? And it's not that they're going to do it to the bum, right? But nevertheless, it's just acknowledging that's a part of the kind of inner stuff that's there, you know? And it gives some humor about it. But when you sense the suffering of holding on, you realize that those stories and what happened and who did and so forth, they don't have your best interest in mind. They're not compassionate to you. They're really, they don't care about you. They're they're a conditioning that is the creation of suffering rather than the end of it. So you see that in yourself. Then you reflect on the benefits of a loving heart. And we go through that when we teach metta and loving kindness meditation very often because there's this whole list of blessings that you inwardly tend to reflect on as part of the training of loving kindness and forgiveness that when the heart becomes more loving, your dreams become sweet and you fall asleep more easily and wake and contented. And people love you and angels and devas will love you and animals will love you, it says. And elephants will bow slightly as you go by, it says in there. Try it in the zoo, you know. And your children will be happier and um, the world becomes more peaceful around you. All these kind of blessings. And so you start to reflect on the benefits of it. Not just for yourself, but for everyone. As Thich Nhat Hanh said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And so the forgiving heart is not just for yourself, although primarily for that, but you become something different in undertaking it. Reflect on its benefits. You also start to see that it's important not to um, be too loyal to your suffering. We're so loyal to our suffering, you know. And after a while, it gets old. It does. Um, the Dalai Lama. And there's trauma, and you need to deal with trauma, and there are healthy ways to learn how to release fight, flight, freeze, all the trauma that's held in the body, and that's important to do. Often you need someone else to help that. But that's not the end of the story. Um, How is it that the Dalai Lama, who carries the weight of the tragedies in Tibet, can also laugh and be so joyful? Or Gosananda, the Cambodian teacher that I worked and studied with, who had such a light heart, even though he led peace marches through the war zones of Cambodia, If we deny our happiness, writes poet Jack Gilbert, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of those who suffer. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure-seeking, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. And there's something so important the Buddhist teaching says, live in joy even among those who are troubled. Live in joy and well-being and health even among the sick. Live in joy and well-being even amidst the struggles of the world. 
This is an invitation to a joyful heart that is possible. And not only does it change you, but it affects the world around you. So, not to be too loyal to your suffering. Know that it's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. You do it a hundred or five hundred times or whatever, and you go through the training. And there are all kinds of inner and outer forms. You can learn the form we'll do tonight, which is written in a number of books. Um, There's Pavarana, a formal one that's done in the monasteries, and other forms of atonement and confession. There's all these practices. But to understand, here's the mechanics, here's how to do it. And part of the mechanics, and the next principle, is that you start with what's easy. In mindfulness, you sit and you take what you get, basically. You say, all right, I take my seat in the midst of the joys and sorrows of the world as the Buddha and bow to what's present and rest in the space of awareness, come back to this reality of the present. With forgiveness and loving-kindness as a practice, you begin wherever it most naturally opens your heart. And this is a beautiful kind of psychological technology, if you will. So if it's your dog that you love the most, or the Dalai Lama, or both, you know, or, or a child, and so forth, whatever opens your heart, and then as you feel love, and you feel kindness and compassion and maybe some forgiveness if there's any difficulty, and the heart's open, then you bring something that's a little more difficult. And you can kind of forgive that. And then when you feel all warm and open and feel what it's like to be free in the heart, then you bring in the difficult one. Or, you know, moderately difficult. You don't have to start with the worst one. And what happens is your heart closes and shrivels and turns into this walnut that you can't, I hate them, I'll never, this is terrible, I hate myself, I never, I should you know, And you feel that, and what you do is you feel the suffering of it. And you have to sit with the suffering for a while, and you breathe and say, I hate this and I can't forgive, and I'll forgive myself for not forgiving. And then after a while you say, you know, this is a drag. It's not worth it. I hate them, but it's just not worth hating them that much because my heart is so closed. I think, all right, even you, I'll forgive a little bit. Ah, that feels good. Maybe a little bit more. And you start to feel the difference between what it means to live freely and what it means to be caught. So you start in the easy way and then it shows itself to you. In it, you have to be willing to grieve, to feel your anger and loss and fear. And um, as Rumi says, or Hafiz, don't reject your loneliness and your grief. Let it season you like few ingredients can. Sometimes your sorrows are the things that really bring you to compassion. And forgiveness works in all the different dimensions of our life. There's a forgiveness in the body, you know. Um, We have to forgive our bodies for not being the way we want them to be. You also have to forgive the magazines for showing you those (laughs) stupid images that were taken on exactly the right day in the right lighting with a lot of makeup and uh, some um, photoshopping, right? And say, you're supposed to be like that. But, you know, because the body carries so much of our trauma and it needs to be respected and loved. If you could just stand in front of the mirror, a horrible and profound and wonderful practice to do and look at your body. Do forgiveness practice. Eduardo Galeano, science says the body is a machine. The church says the body is sin. The marketplace said the body is good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. (laughs) So how are you going to hold this body that you've been given, this funny-looking, weird thing with a little fur in some places? And, you know, it's odd to have a body. It's a weird thing. Hole at one end, as I talk about, in which we stuff dead plants and animals and glug them through the tube. I mean, it's bizarre, right? What are you going to do with it? Hate it? Oh, I don't like it. You know, it's what you got. Just stand in front of the mirror and say, I forgive you. You know, there's a lot of what Tara Brock calls toxic shame. There's shame that we have about our body and our emotions and how we've been. Part of it is wise. There's a place of it that's conscience. It's not just the body. Now we're going to the emotions. Because you also have to forgive 
all the unfinished business. And it's good to know that there's a difference between guilt and regret. Guilt and shame are not particularly helpful. Shame is like there's something wrong with me. That's an interesting story. Who, well, who make you think that? You know, where did that come from? Even, and picture yourself as a child. Is there really something wrong with you? Come on. And, and guilt for things that you've done. Guilt is not terribly helpful. In Buddhist psychology, it's regret that's helpful. Guilt is like beating yourself up and, you know, adding judgment and, and suffering. And regret just says, now I see clearly that was unskillful. That was unhealthy. It caused harm to me. It caused harm to another person. I won't do that again. That's healthy understanding. And it allows you to move on. This is a kind of inner conscience that you carry. Because you know. Some part of you knows, I do, I, I, I want to ask forgiveness for my part, for what I did. The heart knows. This is my teacher, Ajahn Chah, called it the one who knows inside. So forgiveness is a healing of the body and the heart and the mind. All these stories that you have, most of which are just reruns, as you've noticed. Bad movies stuck in a motel room at night, two in the morning, and the remote doesn't work, and you have to watch the shopping channel, and then you have to watch all these bad movies. If you look, most 90% of your thoughts today were reruns. They were. You know, and mostly not of really all good, that good programming, frankly. <laughs> so, you know, you look at the mind and you say, okay, that's its stories, but is, that's not the real story. That's just, you know, conditioning. Abraham Lincoln, who wrote, I've always found that mercy bears richer fruits than strict justice. And forgiveness isn't so much looking for justice, although justice has its place in this world, very important. But forgiveness is a different dimension. And it's the place of mercy toward yourself and toward others. And then you see that forgiveness allows a shift of identity from this small sense of self that feels separate and and hurt or judging of yourself or unworthy, all that deep unworthiness we carry or the way someone else has hurt us, to a kind of nobility. Oh, nobly born, say the Buddhist texts, remember who you really are. Remember your Buddha nature, your true nature. Resume this dignity and this freedom. And then perspective. 100,000 mahakalpas of perspective. A mahakalpa of practicing forgiveness and practicing patience and compassion, the way of bodhisattva. A mahakalpa is the amount of time if you have a mountain seven miles high, which is the height of Mount Everest, seven yojana high. And every hundred years, the bird comes along with the silk scarf in its beak. And once a century, drags the scarf across the top of the mountain, wearing it down a little bit. When that silk scarf wears down Mount Everest, that's one mahakalpa. Right? And 100,000 of those is the Buddha's prescription for practicing patience and forgiveness and compassion and so forth. So, you know, it's a slow process, right? <laughs> but what it really says is, okay, how many kalpas have I done this year, you know, or something. You can't think about it in those. It's outside of time. That you can't think about how am I doing in time. It's timeless, It is more like the Ojibwe saying that we all know now. Sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And sometimes the things that are the worst that have happened to you also become the gateways for your greatest wisdom to come and your deepest compassion. Sometimes they're doorways that you're going through that seem terrible that lead to something entirely new in your life. You know, we're on one of the arms of the Milky Way galaxy that dances around every hundred million years, and we're taking the Ferris wheel ride. For a little bit, you got a ticket, and you get to go for part of the ride, and it's an amazing ride. And if you, you know, want perspective, go out on one of these nights when the stars are really clear and lie down in the grass somewhere and look at the stars and imagine that you're not looking up into the stars but that you're looking down into the stars. Feel your body as stuck to the bottom of the earth, which it is. Gravity holds you against it like a magnet. It does. It's lovely. Thank you. And, 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 and see that, in fact, 
you're looking down into the infinite sea of 30 billion trillion stars, which is what the number they put on it recently of the stars that there are in the universe. In case, you know, that's as far as they've been able to see so far, right? If everybody on Earth could name the stars, each one of you would have the opportunity to name 1.5 trillion stars. You know, Jerry, (laughs) Cynthia, right, Pablo. But it helps to have some perspective. Everybody's been betrayed, and you can feel that betrayal is one part of living in human society. Everybody's been hurt. And when you breathe, you feel, I'm one with all those who've been hurt. And you're also all one with all those who have transformed that hurt. As Helen Keller wrote, she said, um, the world is full of suffering and it is also full of the overcoming of it. And that's the invitation of the Buddha to discover this capacity to transform the difficulty that you will inevitably pass through and find the great heart of compassion in yourself and freedom. So let's do 10, 15 minutes of forgiveness. Is that all right? Why don't you move? You could even stand up. Don't say anything, but stretch your body for a moment. you've stretched a little and feel which way your body wants to move and shake a little bit and allow that. (sighs) Then when you're ready, let yourself sit back down just for the next 10-15 minutes. And again, remember this isn't a practice of idealism. It's really a practice of kindness and a process. Like the guy who says, In a letter to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes last year. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. (laughs) You know, it's a step at a time kind of thing, right? But maybe the most important forgiveness is going to be as you'll see forgiveness of yourself. So let your eyes close gently and come back just to the quality of presence. This breath, this moment seated on the earth. Rest in mindful awareness. And then forgiveness practice has three directions. The first direction. There are many ways in which I have hurt and harmed others. Knowingly and unknowingly, betrayed, abandoned, hurt them. I remember these now and feel the sorrows I still carry. So let yourself sit quietly and remember one or more ways that you caused harm to others. You can know. And in the ways that I've hurt and harmed others, knowingly or unknowingly, betrayed them, abandoned them, caused them pain, out of my confusion and fear, out of my own pain and hurt and anger and misunderstanding, 
in this moment, I ask your forgiveness. I ask your forgiveness. Please forgive me. And just feel what it would be like as you ask, what it might be like to be forgiven. And then, quite naturally, there arises the second direction of forgiveness because it's so clear that we need to forgive ourselves. Just as I have hurt and harmed others, knowingly and unknowingly, betrayed, abandoned them, so too I've harmed myself. As I hurt others, I've hurt myself, I've betrayed myself, abandoned what I really believe and know. And let yourself feel the ways that you carry, the guilt, the self-judgment and self-hatred, so much of it, the great weight of it. And this is a practice to put that down, to release and let that weight be returned to the earth. Let yourself remember all that asks forgiveness in the way you've treated yourself or treated another. And in this second direction, then the reflection, just as I've hurt and harmed others, so too I've betrayed myself many times, judged myself, caused harm. And in the ways that I have betrayed, abandoned, judged, hated myself so many times, out of my confusion and fear, out of my misunderstanding and pain and anger and all the ways I've gotten mixed up. In this moment, I offer myself forgiveness. I hold myself with mercy and tenderness, compassion. I forgive myself. And if it's helpful, you can even put a hand on your heart. Hold yourself. I forgive myself.
and then the third direction of forgiveness. Just as I've hurt and harmed others, so others have hurt me. So many ways I've been betrayed or abandoned or harmed by others knowingly and unknowingly. I remember these now too and feel the sorrow that I carry. Let yourself remember one or more of the ways you've been betrayed or hurt and feel how you still carry this in your body and mind. And in the many ways that I have been betrayed and hurt, harmed by others, knowingly and unknowingly, out of their pain, out of their confusion, out of their fear and anguish and anger and ignorance, to the extent that I'm ready, and it can't be before this, to the extent that I'm ready, I release you. To the extent that I'm ready, I offer you forgiveness. I will not carry hatred in my heart. I forgive you. To the extent that I'm ready, I offer you to forgiveness. And to the extent that I'm not ready, I forgive myself. I feel the work of the heart that is yet to be done. And I forgive myself. Finally, feel your breath and your body seated here and hold all of your humanity, the 10,000 joys and sorrows, what Oscar Wilde calls the tainted glory of humanity, with compassion for the wakeful and compassionate heart. We all struggle in our ways and we all have this great capacity to awaken, to learn compassion, to live with freedom. May it be so. One of the most important things in working with these heart practices, loving-kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and so forth, is not to let your spiritual practice get co-opted by self-judgment and become idealistic. As the Zen poet, the most beloved poet of Japan, Ryokan, wrote, last year a foolish monk, this year 
no change. <laughs> the point isn't to perfect your personality, you know, or the people around you. God spare you. You've tried that. Didn't work, did it really very well? Or the world, although you can certainly stand up for justice and care for all who need care. But the point is really to perfect your love. That's the, that's the real liberation of the heart. Don't tell anyone, writes poet, and poet Alison Luderman, but even as a good Jewish girl, I love Jesus. I love his dark Semitic eyes and how his friends are all the poor and the prostitutes and how he will even go to hell for love. He's just like that Buddhist bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, except his name is easier to pronounce. <laughs> it's hard to yell for Avalokiteshvara when you're in big trouble, but oh Jesus comes naturally to the lips. I just don't want to die saying oh shit. I'd rather die like a llama, lie on my right side and turn my head in the direction of my next birth. I know I would have to meditate a lot to do it this well, and let's face it, there aren't enough years left in my life to get that enlightened. And following Jesus seems so much easier. All you have to do is love everyone. Well, seems is the critical word here. Sometimes it seems impossible, especially with the particular people around you. But then if you really look, you realize what else is there to do? What else is there to do? So I hope this is a useful reminder of this dimension of practice um, for you tonight, this beautiful spring, moist rain shower afternoon and evening. Um, And you can take it as a practice and work with it. It's written about in most of my books and the books of Sharon Salzberg and Stephen Levine and Joseph Goldstein, lots of other folks. Um, Often we chant at the end. Sometimes I do questions. Tonight I want to play you part of a piece of music. Um, And uh, it's in honor of Vedran. For any of you who saw the PBS special there was a, in the hist, maybe it was the History Channel, no, I think it was on PBS, um, uh, that was a biography of Joan Baez and her singing and her work. There's a piece, a section in that where she went to Sarajevo and sat and traded places with the veteran and sat in his chair and, and uh, sang to him. We took his cello away. Anyway, here's a little piece of music, not for very long, and then we'll go out into the evening. Sunday morning at the corner of the square in a freshly pressed tuxedo in a simple folding chair just after curfew lifted and everything was still he played his cello in morning chill in the streets Sarajevo a place of flame and death This music so surprising that the whole world held its breath. And each morning he'd return to that spot and he would play in the streets of Sarajevo every day. And every day made me wonder where did he ever find music amidst the madness and the courage to be kind. Long-forgotten beauty We thought was blown away In the streets of Sarajevo Every day Many was the day The soldiers asked him who he was Finish this verse, I guess. Doing what he does. Many said that he was crazy to risk his life this way on the streets of Sarajevo every day. Okay. 
it is a kind of mysterious thing that we are given the difficulties that we're given and the complexities of our life. Uh, and at the same time, we're also given this capacity for wakefulness and dignity and a kind of inner liberation that no one can take from you, that is your, your birthright and your beauty. And someone went up to Vedran and said, how can you make music in the middle of this war? And he looked back and he said, how can you make war when I'm playing music? <laughs> so may you, let's just sit for a moment. May you carry the music of forgiveness and mercy, the music of a free heart into all the parts of your life and everything you touch in the weeks, days and weeks ahead. Thank you. Good night. See you again, perhaps. Who knows? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.